Hello and welcome to Coding Codices. I'm Island Malcolm, a graduate student at the University of Pennsylvania and a member of the Digital Medievalist Postgraduate Committee. And my name is James Haar. I am a postdoctoral teaching scholar in the Data Science Academy at North Carolina State University. And I'm also a postgraduate committee member for Digital Medievalist. We are very fortunate to have two scholars joining us today, Sarah Fittiment and Tim Stinson. Dr. Sarah Fittiment holds a PhD from the University of Saragossa, which she earned while working in proteomics in cardiovascular research. In 2012, she was awarded a Marie Curie Postdoctoral Research Fellowship to focus on the protein analysis of parchments and move to the University of York. She was then awarded a British Academy Postdoctoral Fellowship, and in 2019, she joined the McDonald Institute for Archaeological Research as an associate on the Beast to Craft project. Her numerous accomplishments include a non-invasive sampling technique that permits researchers to extract proteins and DNA from parchment surfaces without damaging them, largely by using PVC erasers. This technique has been crucial in establishing the field of biocodicology, or the study of the biomolecular information found in manuscripts. Recently, she was the lead author of a study of a 15th century birthing girdle, a strip of parchment that, as Sarah and her collaborators argue, was probably actively used during childbirth. But I'm sure we'll hear more about that in a few minutes. And Tim Stinson is an associate professor of English and a university faculty scholar at North Carolina State University. He is a member of the program faculty for the Communication, Rhetoric, and Digital Media program and an affiliate faculty of the Jewish Studies program, both at NC State. And he is currently a fellow at the National Humanities Center. Tim received his PhD in English Language and Literature from the University of Virginia, and his research interests include Middle English poetry, codicology, history of the book, and digital humanities. He is a leader in the application of digital technologies to medieval studies. He is a co-founder and co-director of the Medieval Electronic Scholarly Alliance, director of the Society for Early English and Norse Electronic Texts, co-director of the Pierce Plowman Electronic Archive, associate director of the Advanced Research Consortium, and editor of the Siege of Jerusalem Electronic Archive. Tim is the recipient of an NEH Digital Humanities Fellowship, and planning and implementation grants from the Mellon Foundation for his digital humanities work. Tim's work collaborating with colleagues and the biological scientists to analyze the DNA found in medieval parchment manuscripts has garnered international press coverage in outlets such as the BBC's The World Today, National Geographic, The Chronicle of Higher Education, and Science. So welcome to you both, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. So as your biographies suggest, you've come to this research from quite different backgrounds. I'm curious to know what drew you to biocodicology and how you started working in this emerging field. Well, I can start there. I, so my background, is, as Jamie just told you, is really in medieval English poetry. So I did a PhD in English language and literature. And during my studies, I got interested in editing. And the, the way this usually works, as, as many in your audience probably know, is for medieval studies, you tend to have, um, for those poems that survive in more than one copy, you tend to have very different versions of the poem, and none of these versions are identical. In fact, many of them are very different. So you go around looking at all the extant copies, and you start to record differences between them and try to work your way back. So, well, you know, what, what's the what's the likely original reading that the author wrote for any given 
part of the poem. So I set sail, not literally, but figuratively for England, made the, uh, the beautiful triangle that medievalists get to do where you go to the British Library, Oxford, Cambridge, a few other spots and looking at manuscripts. And these were some of my earliest encounters with, with actually getting medieval manuscripts in my hands. And I, I went there to look at the text. That's why I was trained to study. That's why I was interested. And as soon as I touched those books, I just thought, wow, you know, I want to know something about the book. Why does no one talk about the book? Of course, I learned pretty quickly. A lot of people do talk about the book, but I was very struck by these things as physical objects, as, you know, in many cases, 600 year old physical objects that, that evidently have a complex biography of their own. And I was struck in most cases by the animal nature of these books. You know, here you have hide glue, parchment, numerous animals in there, leather bindings. And I thought, wow, these, these things are, are fantastic. I really want to know more about them as objects. And as medievalists, we're trained to figure out when and where something is from based on clues such as dialect, because as, as everyone knows, dialect changes both in time and place. If we, if we listen to, you know, someone from Brooklyn and someone from um, Scotland and some from Jamaica speaking English, we would be able to pick out right away where they're from. And it changes, of course, over time. And so does handwriting. You know, you know, if you see a document from the 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th century, there's a good chance you could put them in, in order um, without specialist training. So medievalists are trained to use these sorts of clues and say roughly when and where something is from. But this is often is not all that satisfactory. You might get something like Midlands, mid 14th century, right? Which is, which is not, not all that specific. So I was there trying to figure out such things about these manuscripts and I just said, wait a minute, you know, these are, these are on animal skin. If you go across campus, you ask a scientist when and where is this book from, they're not going to, you know, get out the magnifying glass and check out the shape of the letter G or say, well, look, there's a long A re retained from, from old English. So this indicates this slow disappearance of this heading to the north so we can, we can figure this out. Not to make light of those, those are in their own right fascinating disciplines, but there, there are different ways to answer that. And I thought, I really thought we should ask someone else the same set of questions. And so the first thing I thought of, of course, was DNA. And I set about looking for folks to collaborate with on that. Thank you, Tim. And Sarah, what brought you to biocodicology? I'm a biochemist by training, and I was doing my PhD in a hospital working on cardiovascular research. I was doing uh, proteomics and protein analysis. But I've always had an interest in history and archaeology. Uh, although I trained in the sciences, this is always something that I'd always loved. And just through sheer chance, I had attended um, a course that they were offering on scientific techniques applied to cultural heritage, which is something that I thought sounded great. And through going to that, I met various people and I said, you know, I've got this background in proteins, but I'd really love to work in, you know, this field. Do you think it's possible? And they all told me you should contact um, Matthew Collins in the University of York who is a specialist in proteins and he works on ancient on, on archaeological artifacts etc. So yeah I, I contacted Matthew and I basically said like oh do you think I can like even move into this field because you know I'm just a trained like protein scientist and he's like no this is great like you can definitely come into the field of archaeology which I think is one of the benefits of archaeology is quite a mixed discipline. And we basically just talked over some of the projects that were that were possible that he was currently working on. And one of the things he mentioned was at the University of York, they have the Borthwick Archive, which is a huge archive that hosts 
um, thousands of documents, many of them written on parchment, and he'd recently been there, they'd just recently renovated. And he was telling me about, you know, all these, all these documents that are effectively animal skins, like that's how we see it as sort of biologists, it was like less about the, the book, unfortunately, but more about the potential of these animals that are dated and located, which for us is, is an incredible resource. And that really sparked my interest, and I, and I loved the idea of actually being able to work with something like medieval manuscripts, which otherwise, was, for someone of my background, would be completely unaccessible. So, yeah, um, and I got a Marie Curie to go to York to, to work on that, and initially our project was, it was a small project, it was like two years, and we were going to target these um, these parchment documents in the Borthwick, and our initial plan was to take very, very small um, uh, destructive samples to be able to analyze, you know, what animals are in the archive, etc. But basically, when I got there, um, it like my grant almost didn't happen because we had a meeting with the um, conservators there, and they were like, "No, no, you cannot take destructive samples from our parchments," which I completely understand now. Um, so we had to um, pretty quickly come with come up with a new idea to work around this, um, because we knew we were going to be using. Um, proteomic techniques, so using mass spectrometry, which is incredibly sensitive, you only very small amounts. We actually talked about the idea of using just like, you know, waste if they were like cleaning or scraping. And um, yeah, by working with the conservators, we used some of their cleaning techniques and found that this non-invasive eraser seemed to work perfectly. So it just spiraled from there. Once we had a non-invasive technique, um, the libraries just opened up to us. They were, they were a lot happier about us being able to analyze their sample. I just find it fascinating that two very different research tracks from two very different scholars have converged into this line of research. But I think it speaks very highly of the interdisciplinarity of medieval studies today. So I guess the, the follow-up question that, that we wanted to ask is, uh, so what are you working on now? What are your current projects in biocodicology? Well, I've been fortunate enough to be part of a new team here at North Carolina State University with some colleagues in the College of Veterinary Medicine. And, you know, we've been in touch with Sarah and Matthew Collins in the UK. I, I did some work with, with Sarah and Matthew a, a few years back. And... What we're looking at, we are now testing 100 manuscripts at, here at Duke University, and we are we're doing a couple of things. We are doing some comparison between the PVC eraser technique and another technique we develop here in-house that uses cytology brushes. And Sarah knows about this. I, I was asking her about this a few years back and sent her some some, we did some of the same thing with Sarah. I sent her a few brushes to say, how do these compare? So we're we're still looking somewhat this is early days enough that we're still refining techniques and looking at techniques what's what's the best way to get this stuff out non-destructively because that really was an impediment as sarah says in the early days uh, i was going around to dealers at markets you know buying my own leaves and taking little slices off of them because early on there's no other way to do it so we're still refining technique we're also looking across a wide geographical time and space. We're doing a small number of samples from a lot of manuscripts and then some deep dives on a few individual manuscripts. And we're interested to see how results might compare across centuries and then if there are geographical differences. So for example, what would you look for? 
if you look at parchment in Middle Eastern context, you know, if you're looking at uh, Hebraic manuscripts or Syrian manuscripts or Ethiopic codices, does the does the substrate that is the parchment the the preparation methods differ historically or in different places in a way that would affect the viability of the data that's something we're interested in and then this question of sexing which is to say you know are we going to have more male or female animals when we look at which animals furnish the the skins that became the parchment logically you would you would think that there would be more males and females, but we're we're always surprised. <laughs> That's one great thing about this this work is every every time we do anything, you know, it's a very early day still, but the results seem to surprise us. So we're we're waiting to see what comes of that. So I'm currently working on the Beast of Carf project, which is an ELC funded big European project. And we're basically, um, it's an interdisciplinary project where we're looking at parchment from different aspects. So from a craft perspective, from a cons uh, conservation perspective, um, myself um, looking at protein analysis, there's also genetic analysis. So really just looking at parchment as a medium, as, an, as a biological reservoir for animals, uh, for animal genetics, but also the craft and production that goes into producing parchment for bindings, for books, etc. So it's it's coming from very many different perspectives, and I'm obviously focusing, focusing mainly on the proteins. So again, looking from different geographic locations, different forms of production of parchment, and how we can maybe tell by our biochemical analysis how the parchment has been produced. And then the one area that I'm focusing more on which I'm more interested in at the moment is related to birth girdle, um, looking at stains on parchment. So starting to look, apart from ob the obvious information we can get about the animal, what other things can we find on the surface of these parchments that can give us an idea about the use and the history of this object? Uh, just a follow-up question. Sarah, I know you work with non-invasive peptide fingerprinting, and uh, that's with the, the erasers that you use, is that correct? Yes, yes. Could you could could you speak a little so, bit just just slightly about the process of the the erasers versus the cytology brushes just to make it a little clearer what they do how what the process is? Sure, I'll I can yeah I'll talk about the erasers and then Tim and you can talk about the cytology brushes which he developed. Um, for the in the case of the erasers, um, so like I said, I was working in the Borthwick archive with the conservation staff, and we were looking at methods of clean parchment that were used by the conservators. So these were accepted methods that. They, they allowed to, um, to use on their parchments. So I tried various things, so, so smoke sponges and some different type of um, gums. And one of the things that they use, although not routinely, but they are accepted to use are PVC erasers. And all we do with these erasers is we take a, a new fragment of eraser, so a small fragment, and we very gently wipe it on the surface of the parchment. So we're not rubbing, it's very, very gentle wiping. And what we're doing is we're collecting all the little crumbs that are generated. So like when you use an eraser normally to rub out your, your mistakes, um, all those little crumbs that you normally blow away, those are the little crumbs that we collect. And we need a really, really tiny amount. We basically say to people, if you can see crumbs, that's enough. Like as long as you can see one or two, that's it. Um, so we collect these little fragments and then that's taken to our lab. They're very stable. Like you don't need to like, they can, you can collect crumbs and keep them in a drawer for months or ages. They, they really don't degrade in any way. 
Um, and in the lab, we use a very simple protocol to extract the proteins. So uh, it's just a saline solution, and we heat it up, and that pulls off the um, collagen, which is the main protein that we're looking at. We, it pulls off the collagen molecule in solution. We then use another enzyme called trypsin, which is another protein that basically cuts up the collagen, because collagen is a very, very long molecule and it's too long for us to, to read intact, so we have to cut up into smaller fragments. And then we use a mass spectrometer, in our case a MALDI, a MALDI-TOF, um, to be able to discriminate these peptides. So basically, it's called time of flight. What it's gonna do is measure, measure the mass of these little fragments, these little peptides, and it gives a characteristic fingerprint for each of the different collagens of the different animals. So by matching up, these unique fingerprints, you can identify the animal that it's come from. So for the, for the cytology brushes, these brushes are, they're designed to collect cells without damaging skin. So probably the most well-known application of them medically is, you know, pap smear brushes. These are basically exactly what we're using, but also sometimes, you know, perhaps those little brushes you've seen that people scrape inside their cheeks or something like that. These things grab cells, but of course they don't really injure. That's the idea behind them. And so we found that rubbing those on the parchment picks up enough cells for analysis, but doesn't damage, even if you look at it under, under a microscope, which the conservation scientists at Duke did when they were checking out this technique, you, you don't see any, any marks left over on the parchment. And we just cut the heads off the brushes. They go into these little tubes and they're incubated with what's called extraction buffer. So the, the solution kind of gets the cells off of the teeth of the brushes. This is, I'm not a scientist, but as I understand it, it's, it's purified for, um, for PCR extraction. And then there's an assay kit that, that goes with that. And that measures essentially quantities. And depending on the questions we're trying to answer, there are different other techniques. So for example, there's digital droplet PCR, which is useful for um, species and sex determination. And I mentioned that uh, th this is being done in the lab of Kelly Mickeljohn, one of my colleagues here at NC State in, in the veterinary school, working with Melissa Scheibel. And they both have a background in forensic science. So and indeed Kelly came here from, from the FBI, which I thought was super cool. You know, when I met her, I was like, wow, someone from the FBI working on, on, on these manuscripts. But something I, I hadn't realized or hadn't really thought about before I met them is that when you when you're done with the medieval manuscript, you're dealing with highly degraded DNA. And if you think about the sort of classic double helix, the one thing everyone knows about DNA with all these base pairs on it. And in a forensic context, which indeed a medieval manuscript is a forensic context, what you're dealing with are, are really fragmented parts of this. So if you imagine these thousands of base pairs in this neat row, which you would get if you got a blood sample from a living person, right? A complete, a complete set. That's not what you find in forensic environments. You find two things. One is that these base pairs are all broken up. So you might get this piece down here and this one up here and this one up here. And if you take multiple samples, you might get different base pairs. So forensic scientists are trained to as it were, rebuild those, those, uh, those base pairs in the proper order and figure out uh, what this is we're looking at. But the other thing you get Sarah referred to is this kind of environment in these, basically a microbiome. She mentioned stains, but there's all sorts of things, you know, 
acne from human beings, like the, the bacteria in human acne is one of the, the grosser things we've encountered. Um, you know, things spilled on it from people touching it, mice running across it, insects, dust, which is often human skin cells, all this stuff lands in the books. And so um, we're also interested here in thinking about that as a, as a sort of microbiome, right? That there's, I initially considered this as the DNA I want to get and all the contamination on top of the DNA I want to get. But, you know, in working with, with these teams, I've, I've come to see that there's actually a lot of, of interest in here. And one, one DNA is indeed the, the animal skin, which, which we're able to get. It seems like we're able to get pretty reliably with both of these techniques, but um, there's a lot of other stuff there that's of interest that, that we can capture using these techniques. I, I love that uh, process through which the contaminant becomes the object of interest. I think that's so fabulous. So as digital medievalists, we think a lot about collaboration. Um, even this podcast is the result of continuous collaboration within our committee. So Jamie and I wanted to ask you about interdisciplinary collaboration, both the benefits and challenges of working with such a diverse group of experts. Um, you know, you have various scientists, archaeologists, specialists in different literary cultures, conservators. Tim, I'm sure that this has only increased with your current work across different geographic regions. So how have you built your teams? How have you communicated findings in one field to researchers in another? And then as a related question, I'm also interested in the reception of your work across disciplines and whether you've met with any resistance. I know that in some cases your findings have confirmed codicological findings. So perhaps that's a sign of the productive relationships that this work might encourage. Well, I think to, to talk about the good side of this first, I think that's mainly what, what this podcast is, is addressing. And we've been talking about that, all the potential. So I'll, I'll just say briefly, one of the benefits that we haven't touched upon yet is simply how eye-opening it is. The very thing I just mentioned of, I, I thought about these books in one way. Right. I thought about them as repositories of textual information. And then I, I had this kind of awakening moment where I thought, aha, there's a lot more here. But even so, I, I was initially thinking of science as an avenue to answer humanity's questions. And when I began to talk to scientists, they started to say, oh, you know, by the way, there maybe there's uh, some record of environmental change here. By the way, do you realize what absolutely non-peril faunal evidence this is? We've been looking around in muddy pits hoping for, you know, a slaughter site from the Roman army encampment or something like that. Here it is year by year with, with the date and time, in many cases written on it, um, not time, but rather location. And so I had this ever-expanding horizon from, from the interaction with other people from other disciplines of the sorts of questions we could pose and potentially answer. It was way bigger than anything I'd hoped for. Yes, my, my questions and concerns were in the mix, but there was so much more there. So there are though quite a few challenges. And you know, this, this, we've both alluded to the fact, Sarah and I, of early roadblocks where librarians looked at us and said, you've got to be kidding me. You know, you, you can't come in here and, and, and mess up our manuscripts. And of course, that's not what we wanted to do. We were just hoping for some little sliver. And, um, you know, maybe when they were disbinding, we could get little bits or something like that. But we really had to figure out 
it took years to figure out some way to get this this information that didn't damage the manuscript and that's that's we think of that as an obvious thing as humanists well of course you can't go in and cut the manuscripts but in fact that's also a cultural value if you go to natural history collections you can just you know drill a nice little piece out of the dinosaur bone or or you know clip a little piece of the, the squirrel's toe off or whatnot you know if, if you need to for for doing research so this is this is a both a technological and cultural challenge to come against that so from the start we ran into things like that a lot of problems though because this is such a brand new field persist and we're still struggling with one of those is funding how to go about who wants to fund this i remember doing a call around to all the agencies here the uh, in the u.s all the federal agencies the program officers i talked to seem genuinely interested maybe they're just good professionally at seeming genuinely interested but my take was they really thought this was fascinating and they would all say, but we don't have a program that would cover that. You know, maybe you should try the next agency down the block. And, and it's tricky because it's so new, it doesn't fit into any of the established calls for funding. And, you know, in the, in the humanities, there's not a lot of money available. Why would they fund scientific research in, in the scientific context? It can be difficult sometimes if, if what you're doing looks too humanistic and there tend to be established programs that it doesn't neatly fit into then from the point of view of humanist trying to find collaborators is very tricky because there's there's a there's a tremendous pressure on scientists for their labs to be productive in terms of you know getting funding that funds the lab funds their graduate students and postdocs produces research. So when you're doing something new and speculative and the outcome might be something that's going to be published in a journal of medieval studies, that that's not going to fly. You have to think of a way that works for, for this team, for everyone to get some sort of professional credit. Similarly, from the point of view of, of humanists, there's a problem of joint publication where there are a lot of authors in science journals. You know, if that's your outcome, what good is that going to be on your CV? everyone's excited about it, but they aren't quite sure what to do with it. You know, what, what, well, this is, this is fantastic. Look, this English professor's out doing DNA work. How cool, but how does it count? Yeah, I think I will echo everything Tim just said, because he's completely right. Um, what I would say is I have been very lucky and I've had an incredibly positive experience working since I started working in manuscripts because people have been really open to to listen to us, to, to, to talk with us. And it's not just been a question of, you know, we're the scientists, we come in with this technique and then we just give you an answer and go away and then you just do. It's very, very much been a back and forth. So we worked closely with conservation, we work closely with, with curators and people, you know, they, they give us a question and we, we look at it from our perspective and said, well, have you thought about this? And that's the only way we can really move forward because if it's if it keeps being isolated of just, well, we have this technique and we just run it as a service and then people don't engage with the science enough and they just want the results for their for their um, studies. It, it really has to be this like conversation and teamwork between everybody. And we've had a really good experience of that. And we've had people um, really come in from all the three conservation, humanities and science and really work together as a team. And that's been, I think, one of our huge strengths. Um, yeah, I echo about the uh, sampling, like I said at the beginning, that um, 
probably quite naively coming from the sciences we expected to be able to have samples to use albeit very small ones and we were looked on with faces of horror um, like you know you cannot touch our books which now obviously having worked a long time with um, with manuscripts now I, I also see it in that way um, but yeah there is a place to find a, a happy medium but we were in a way it was good for us because it it forced us to reevaluate how sophisticated our, our technique was and what we could use to um to forward our research and we ended up developing this non-invasive technique which then changed the way we could access so it's very much back and forth between the disciplines but in a very collaborative sense um working in the archaeology department which Funnily enough, although not strictly speaking very close to manuscripts, it's actually quite an interdisciplinary uh, department. So we do have people both from sciences and both from more historical side. Um, but it's it's much it's much more common to have this like integration of the humanities and the sciences. But we are very used to um, using destructive samples. So in archaeology, there isn't so much question about being given samples. Although we try and minimise, you will go and drill a bone, and you know it might even be the bone of a, a famous king, and that's not a problem. But taking a tiny sliver of a book, there is a lot more, um, I think, yeah, cultural importance or given to some of these manuscripts. So that was certainly a challenge. But but like I said, yeah, the more the techniques get better, we're getting past that. And I think the more the the, the conservation community is, is involved and the more the curatorial and the, and the actual scholars see what we're doing, it then becomes a more natural process and people see that, oh, actually, we're not doing anything that's da that damaging, but we can get a lot of information out of it. And from our perspective, obviously, we start off seeing the, the parchment as, as skins, as a biological resource, so if we come from a very different angle. But you, you then start to appreciate, you know, the construction of the book and why, why are they using particular animals in a particular sequence, which is something we didn't expect, or, or mixing up animals, and how does the uh, production of the parchment actually affect the quality of the book, how it feels, but how also chemically it looks to us. So it's opened up a whole series of questions that initially we, we went into just thinking, you know, look at the animal, but th there is more to that. And in our case, for example, the as as Tim said, like the having a resource of an animal that basically has a time stamp on it, like the date and location for us is incredible. Like we're used to digging up things from the ground that have, you know, roughly a century's worth of dating, maybe give or take. So it's an incredible resource that I think people from, from the more um, biological sciences have not thought about. And when we're talking about looking at, you know, rare breeds and, and um, you know, domestication, different the way animals have evolved, we have an incredible resource there that can potentially be, be used. And we, yeah, I think we need to bring that, highlight the importance of, of this incredible biomolecular reservoir that initially probably people have um, completely overlooked. It seems like in terms of potential contributions this, this area of study can make, it's still so undefined that not really sure how it fits into these larger, more traditional areas of study. A conversation that often comes up in these podcasts is how uh, labor is acknowledged and how scholarship is acknowledged. And to get back to what Tim was talking about, where do these, where does this study fall? In a scientific journal, into a medieval studies journal? And, but if, if you want to speak to that for, for a bit, that'd be uh, fantastic. That, that was a bit of a learning curve for us as well. As Tim alluded to, we, we are very used to, like all our 
publications are multi-authored, co-authored. You would not, you would not publish on your own, and this is very accepted. And this is this is how we are, are graded for our, you know, for our grant proposals, etc. You need to have these multi-authored publications. But obviously, when we talk to our colleagues in um, in the humanities, it was very different for them, and it was quite hard for some of them to actually put their name in these like multi-authored papers. Some really welcomed it and loved it, but others were a bit more apprehensive, understandably, because it's a completely different way of publishing. And as Tim was talking about the funding is exactly the same. Currently, we kind of fall between the cracks in a bit because if we go for humanities funding, the kind of work we need to do in the lab, we just don't have the re like the humanities don't have the resources for it. The, the amount of funding you get is not sufficient for some of the more sophisticated techniques that we need. However, if we go for pure hard science funding, you are competing against people who are doing cancer research, for example, and, you know, you're not going to be as high in the, uh, in the order of, of grants. So it's a, it's a hard one. There, I mean, there are calls out there and, the, and there is a lot starting to become, like, there are a lot of calls that start to require this interdisciplinary approach, and those are the ones we target, and social sciences, archaeology, like I said, I know I've said it before, but it is that cross-section and it has often been helpful to be able to secure funding. Um, but yeah, it's it's definitely um, um, a bit of a learning curve, and, and with our work, for example, although we primarily publish in um, scientific journals, because of course that's what's required of us, we are constantly thinking about how we can make our work accessible also to um, people more in, in purely in manuscript studies and who may not have come across our work, because of course we might frequent different conferences or or etc. So it's it's trying to be able to to cater for different audiences and make sure that everybody knows that everybody's equally welcome to, to join and we, we need that. Like, if we get siloed into these different disciplines, it doesn't work. It needs to have the input from all the different angles at the same time to make it functional. And I think up until now we've been really lucky and, and it has it has really worked. Yeah, my, my hope, Jamie, is that this becomes what already is a field or a brand new field, but my hope is that it really continues to gain traction so that we have some sense of people understand biocodecology as a field that's deeply interdisciplinary, that maybe even one day in the future we have our own journals we can publish in and that sort of thing. At the moment, it's it remains tricky territory. The the thing that we we have a couple of advantages. One is, as Sarah pointed out, so far this has been an amazing community in terms of mutual support, enthusiasm, but we've also had a lot of enthusiasm from, it seems to me, all fronts. Folks in the sciences, folks in libraries are, have been very welcoming. We, I mean, we, we mentioned their reticence, rightly enough. I would be reticent if I were them too, to have a slice into things, but also librarians have been tremendously helpful and, and knowledgeable and, and helping us think through this from a conservation science point of view and how we might handle this new type of data we're getting from these types of things. So that's been a big advantage. And folks in the humanities have also seem very, very excited by this. I think at the moment, this is probably would be the most difficult for someone who's early career pre-tenure. You know, I, I was lucky enough, uh, this came out, I guess, last year, I, I actually co-published with Sarah, and I think there were, what, four of us, Sarah, in that article in bioinformatics, 
And I was totally thrilled. Wow, look at me. There's my name on a, in a science journal. You know, I only wrote two paragraphs and didn't understand much of the rest of it. But nonetheless, I said, aha, look at me. You know, I, um, here I am alongside Sarah and Matthew Collins. And um, this is fabulous. You know, I've arrived. But um, I, I don't need to really worry about how much that counts post-tenure. Someone, you know, pre-tenure would really have to think, well, how much time is in this? Is it going to count? Maybe have to make an argument for it. So I think this is probably a trickier question for people who are early career. This idea of, of counting the, the issue of funding and things remain a little bit thornier at the moment. Do you have anything else that you would like to share with us? Anything that you're excited about in the future? Can we ask a surprise question? Yeah. Yeah. Let's do the surprise question. Okay. Then. What have been your favorite surprises that you've uncovered in the process of doing this research? Well, I think Sarah has answered this because mm -hmm. my favorite surprise, Sarah, I think is the one who found it out, which was Sarah, the interleaving of the cattle and sheep in that lost St. Luke. That's, that blew my mind, honestly. You know, I keep, I'm still, I showed just this week that graphic to someone. It's like, you're not going to believe, it. I'm still like running around years later to people, like, you're not going to believe this, you know. So, this is actually a really good example of where you really need a cross disciplinary team because we were given access to um, a 12th century glossed Gospel of St. Luke and it's in its original bindings. And we originally, this was very early on in our project, so we originally um, targeted a couple of the folia. To be able to get species ID. So, you know, I took two random samples, they came back as sheep, and I was like, yeah, it's fine, it's 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 sheep parchment. And um, a, a colleague of ours, a conservator, came along and had a look, and he just looked at the folios and he's like, no, these are different. Like, you can see that there is definitely calf in here. So, we were like, oh, okay. So, we thought, okay, let's do a systematic analysis of this book, let's target every bifolia target the bindings and just see what's in there. And one book ended up containing at least five species of animal. So we had calf parchment, we had sheep parchment, and we had this goat parchment that was tucked away in the middle, which nobody expected. And we had two types of deer on the binding. So the covers were made of roe deer, and then the strap that held it together was a fallow or red deer. So from what I'd initially very like naively said, like, oh yeah, it's just a sheep, you know, document turns out to have been this incredible like book with five different species and an incredibly um, it was there was a very um, 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 fixed pattern of how the parchment was distributed. It wasn't just you know a bit here, a bit there. They had like a pattern of interleaving the calf with the sheep. Um, and then like in the choirs at the end, they only have sheep and this coincided where the scribe, was changed to a different scribe that turned out to be a worse scribe. So these all these questions started to, to come out of this, what we thought was just going to be like, you know, the analysis. And it just threw up all this other information. And it really got us thinking about you know, how these books are produced. And, you know, is it to do with like, why are they using these different animals? Is it to do with, you know, availability of, of, the, of the livestock? Is it a personal choice that the scribes like one material versus another? It was really fascinating, and yeah, the, the, the goat, the half goat, as we've, we've managed to discover, because there's only half a goat in there, because, um, 
Yuji um, Vnuchik, who is the conservator who is actually looking at this, he works in the Royal Library and also is part of our Beast of Craft project, he's able to um, often piece together these bifolia to make the complete skins of the animal. Um, and we were able to do that in this book, so we, we, he actually was able to put together, you know, a few of the complete calf skins, sheep, and the goat is, is the back, back half of the goat, I think. So where's it coming from? Why is it used? We don't know. It's, it's something we hope to go back. We're actually looking to go back and do more about this book. But it was an incredible, it's an incredible book, and yeah, just an incredible find. Yeah, five, five species in one book. Well, especially because goat is so rarely... The way that we think about it, we think of goat as coming from Italy or, or Spain usually, um, but rarely in Britain. Yeah, well, it, yeah, it, obviously in Italy is where we find most of it, but actually having done many thousands of parchments now through the project, it's not so unusual in England anymore. We are coming up with this goat, but it's an incredibly interesting story because we don't have the archaeological record for goat that the we would hope to see tie in with these skins. We don't have the same number of bones that we find for sheep and calf. So a question has always been like, well, where is this goat coming from? So yeah, that's definitely, that's on our agenda. Where, where's the goat? <laughs> I have to say my favorite part about this manuscript, this, this example of the, the Gospel of St. Luke is the location of the, the goat skin in the manuscript itself. That was my little contribution to the to the article we published, which is there is exactly one mention of goats in the Gospel of Luke, and it comes immediately after that goat skin. Well, it comes immediately before the goat skin, so the goat, goat skin appears right after, which is, you know, the story of the prodigal son. When the prodigal son comes back, is, is welcomed by the father, there's all this celebration, and he kills the fatted calf to celebrate the return, whereas the good son who's been there toiling away for all the years said, you know, you never gave me a single kid and a single goat to celebrate. So I, I was pointing out to, when I saw this goat skin, I was pointing out to them, well, you know, it comes that that's right about the same moment in the book as if, as if it's an inside joke, like, Hey, Hey kid, here's your kid. You want it? You know, I'm not willing to assert that. I was just saying, look, this is, this is interesting that it is right there. And it's just that that book, the, the big surprise, it's not only the number of animals in it, but the, that, that interleaving at the beginning is so strange. It's, you know, a sheepskin inside of a goat's, sorry, a sheepskin inside of a calfskin, inside of a sheepskin, inside of a calfskin, you know, it's like the, the Taco Bell entree of, uh, of, you know, of, of Codicality, right? Everything neatly stacked in all these different, all these different items. And so I, I thought, this this is so strange that it it suggests that the scribe who's going I don't know to the storeroom somewhere pulling out leaves of parchment is in thinking about species which just blew my mind and a lot of other people's mind and as Sarah pointed out when we get to the the second scribe it's it's all sheep right that that goes away and we don't it just begs for some sort of narrative, but all we can do is guess. And then on top of that, this goat thing, you know, this weird goat thing right about the time it mentions goat. It, it, there's at least a suggestion that there's scribes aren't just, you know, thinking about parchment as a substrate. Well, I just look for a decent looking sheet and I, I get busy copying. I'm sure some of them work that way, but in that book, at least it looks like um, something intentional. And this, Sarah, is, to your knowledge, is this the first book where someone actually went through and, 
and mapped out all the species in that way? Uh, yeah, well, it's the one we did first. We've um, The one we published first, that was the York Gospels. That's the other one we did a complete analysis. And that one was a lot more, was, I won't say the word boring, but it was a lot more consistent. It was um, all calf with only sheep for like later editions. But um, yeah, this is the one we targeted first, although it hasn't been like fully published. And I was going to say, right. what's, what's interesting about the goat as well is that it's not particularly good quality goat parchment. Normally, goat is quite good. This actually has like it's um, like it has holes in it, and it's not a particularly nice piece of goat. So why you actively chose to put that in? It's um, a really interesting story. Well, we would love to keep talking about biocodicology, but unfortunately, we are out of time for this episode. Thank you so much for your time. This has been very fun and very exciting for both of us, I think. Thanks for listening to Coding Codices, a podcast by the Digital Medievalist Postgraduate Committee. I'm James Haar. And I'm Island Malcolm. And our guests on this episode on biocodicology were Dr. Sarah Fidiment and Dr. Timothy Stinson. You can listen to more episodes of Coding Codices on our website, podcast.digitalmedievalist.org, or the podcast provider of your choice. Of course, you could also get in touch with us at dmpostgrads at gmail.com. <laughs>